What does it take to solidify a community? Sometimes it takes a tragedy. I can't say with 100% certainty that Birmingham would have just become another shutter part of Bloomfield had Emery Fish not murdered Polly and Cynthia Utter. But I can show that it brought folks living in the area together and made them think of themselves as a community in that forested wilderness of Oakland County 200 years ago. This is Birmingham Uncovered, a podcast by the Birmingham Museum where we are exploring the diverse and compelling lives that built Birmingham, Michigan into the community that it is today. First, some background on Birmingham. We are a city of approximately 20,000 people over 4.73 square miles, located approximately halfway between Detroit and Pontiac in Oakland County. This area was occupied by members of the Three Fires Confederacy of Indigenous People before white settlement in the area started in the late 18-teens. Birmingham became a city in 1933 and today is known as a prosperous and multifaceted community with a thriving cultural scene. In this episode, we are going back to the beginning of that white settlement, not to the men sometimes referred to as Birmingham's founders, or their families, but to another early family, the Fish family. They weren't one of the first four families, but they were still pretty early in terms of settlement. In this episode, we'll talk about Emery Fish, who committed the first murders tried in the Oakland County court system, and who gives us a glimpse into how 1820s American society viewed mental illness, how urban myths are created, and what life was like in the earliest days of the settlement in the area. Next episode, we'll talk about his brother, Elijah Fish, a man different from Emory in almost every way, who became a prominent abolitionist and social reformer in the early to mid-1800s. Just a note on the name Emory. It is spelled both I-M-R-I and E-M-R-I, in the 1825 court records, and within the family history, there is a bit of uncertainty as to how his name would have been pronounced. It could have been pronounced how we would pronounce the name Emery, but Emery is the pronunciation that museum employees and some Birmingham historians have been using for the last few decades, along with spelling his name with an I. So I'm going to be rolling with that. Emory was born in Vermont to Josiah Fish and Elizabeth Hazelton Fish in 1789, the second youngest of their eventual six children. Josiah was a veteran of the Revolutionary War who moved his family to a farmstead within the bounds of what is today the modern city of Rochester, New York. But then it was an unpopulated and wild area. In 1798, Emory's mother died causing the family to become split. The youngest son, Elijah, about five years old, was sent off to live with an aunt and uncle, while nine-year-old Emery and his older siblings remained with their father. We don't know why Emery would later join his brother Elijah in Michigan in the early 1820s. Elijah had purchased land in what would become Birmingham in 1820 and had settled on it with his wife, Fanny Spencer Fish, and their children. Whether through a desire for independence or perhaps disliking living in a home with small children underfoot, 
he ended up in the household of John and Polly Diamond Utter and their three children, Joseph, who was 16 in 1825, Cynthia Ann, 13, and Mary Ann, 3. Many single and able-bodied veterans found themselves doing something similar, doing general labor in a homestead in return for room and board. The Utter family were tenant farmers on land owned by others and adjacent to the land owned by Elijah Fish and his family. Our earliest records have them on that parcel dating to 1824, but it is possible that they might have moved in the year before. By 1825, settlement along the Saginaw Trail in what is now Birmingham totaled about six families. The trail, a Native American trail that had been in use for at least 10,000 years, was then the only way to get from Detroit to Pontiac. What is today a 40-minute drive on the freeway then took about two days, and the settlement was right smack dab in the middle of the route. Most of the men in the area including the Fish Brothers, were veterans of the War of 1812. As the United States pushed for greater settlement of the area after the war, they offered deals on land to veterans. As this group of homesteads didn't have an official name yet, and both the newspaper accounts and court records is listed by its township, Bloomfield. In historical research, there are often several versions of a story. Newspaper accounts and court records are often seen as the most factual, and these are balanced with first-person accounts given in things like letters, diaries, and later remembrances. We don't have any diary accounts from the time, so we will start with an account of the murder of Polly and Cynthia Utter from the April 12, 1825 issue of the Detroit Gazette. The Gazette was a weekly newspaper published between 1817 and 1830, and at this time was the only newspaper in the area. In 1825, Detroit itself was only a small town, and in 1828 the population only numbered 1,517. The article does include some graphic descriptions of the violence inflicted on both women, and if you'd rather not hear that, Feel free to skip ahead about a minute. Quote, the following statement of facts relative to the shocking occurrences which transpired last week in Bloomfield, Oakland County, is from Mr. John Utter, husband of Mrs. Utter, and Mr. John Diamond, her brother. Bloomfield, April 6th, 1825. On the evening of last Monday, a man named Emery Fish, in a state of derangement, killed, with an axe, the wife and daughter of Mr. John Utter, who resides about five miles from Pontiac. The following are the circumstances of this mournful and tragical event. Fish has, from childhood, been subject to epileptic fits, and during the last nine years has, at times, been deranged. He has been boarding in the family of Mr. Utter, and on Saturday evening, between the hours of 9 and 10, he went away and was found about 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, entirely naked, within a mile of Mr. Bronry's tavern, on a road in Detroit. His clothes were found about a mile from the place where he departed. He was brought to his brother's, who resides in the vicinity of Mr. Utter, and appeared in recovering from his insanity. Until towards night on Monday, 
when he exhibited unusual signs of derangement. He went to Mr. Utter's, where his chest was kept, and took from thence letters and other papers, and walked in the woods. Information on this being given to his brother, he went in search of him, and, on his return, when he arrived within thirty or forty yards of Mr. Utter's, he heard shrieks of distress. He ran to the spot and beheld Mrs. Yu lying lifeless on the ground near the door. He immediately ran in the direction in which he had previously seen someone running, and had not proceeded many rods before he was met by his brother with the fatal weapon. He immediately raised the axe and exclaimed, You want killing too? He pursued his brother, who fortunately made his escape and gave the alarm. There was with some difficulty taken and bound. Mrs. Yu was aged 44. She was found with her head nearly severed from her body. The daughter was 13 years old and found about 20 rods from the house, killed by a deep wound extending obliquely from her mouth across her neck, besides some other wounds. Fish acknowledged that he had killed them, and he said he thought it was his duty to do so. His brother's horse was also found mortally wounded on Tuesday morning, which he confessed he did with an axe. The jury, called by a coroner, brought in a verdict that Fish was in a state of insanity. End quote. Side note, my fifth grade teacher told me that tragical wasn't a word. And who's laughing now, Mrs. Fury? And if you're wondering, a rod is about five and a half yards. It was the first murder trial heard in Oakland County. The court had been in existence for almost a decade previous, but the most serious case before this was assault. Elijah was subpoenaed and testified much the same as his account in the newspaper, with the added detail that he had run back to his house after his initial run-in with Emery and told his family to run to a neighbor's home and then acted as a decoy to distract Emery, who was pursuing him, as his family fled. Local doctor Ziba Swan was called and testified that he had been called to the Utter residence by John Utter the evening of April 4th and accompanied him into the house where they found no one but a child on the bed. They took the child and started towards Elijah Fish's home where they met Emery at the barn where they bound the man and later found Mrs. Utter not far from the door. Results of an inquest were also submitted into evidence in which 15 residents of Oakland County testified that both Polly and Cynthia died as a result of blows delivered by Emery Fish with an axe. The trial began at 10 a.m., and by 5 p.m., Emery was indicted for the murders of Polly and Cynthia. The exact wording, though, was that, quote, Emery Fish, late of the town of Bloomfield, not having the fear of God before his eyes, but being moved and deceived by the motivation of the devil, on the fourth day of April, 1825, with force and arms at the town foresaid, feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought, did make an assault, and held the said Cynthia Ann Utter in and upon the right side of the head and neck, below the right ear of her. Then and there did strike, cut, penetrate, and wound, giving to Cynthia Ann Utter, upon the right side of the head and the neck, below the right ear, one mortal wound of the breadth of eight inches and the depth of four inches, of which said mortal wound she, there and then, instantly died. 
end quote. So Emery was indicted for murder, though with the concession that he was not in his right mind. Ultimately, the charges for Polly's death were dismissed, and he was found not guilty for the murder of Cynthia. Instead, he was charged with insanity and remained incarcerated. In the last few decades, the insanity defense has come under intense scrutiny as to how those receive treatment as part of their punishment. In 1826, however, there was just one jail, the Oakland County Jail in Pontiac, a simple two-story log structure, and that is where Emery lived out the rest of his life. Elijah is part of the story here, too, paying for things like better food, blankets, and even a new floor for Emery's cell. He had been appointed as Emery's guardian with charge over his estate shortly after Emery was imprisoned. Unfortunately, we don't have any records of how often the brothers communicated, what their relationship looked like, or how they may have viewed each other. But what exactly caused Emery to, quote, not have the fear of God before his eyes? In the newspaper article I quoted above, Emery is said to have suffered from epileptic fits and was, quote, deranged. Unfortunately, that really doesn't tell us anything. In the early 1800s, epilepsy was sometimes used as a catch-all term for anything not quite neurotypical. Can seizure disorders, as we know and define them medically today, cause damage to the prefrontal cortex and thus lead someone to act out violently? It is possible, but doctors who specialize in the condition point out that this sort of brain damage would affect other parts of the brain and would possibly affect things like fine motor control, which is not reported in Emery's case. Deranged is also another similar catch-all term. Some people have latched onto the nine years that he was said to have exhibited his deranged behavior, and have speculated that he was suffering from PTSD after his service during the War of 1812. PTSD was not on the medical radar at the time, and it would still be about another hundred years or so before it, be it would become medically described and studied. The War of 1812 was a particularly brutal conflict fought on American soil, and soldiers on both sides and civilians reported that some hand-to-hand -hand combat was done with axes and hatchets, particularly among the Native American combatants. Aside from PTSD, a serious brain injury could have impaired his brain functioning or reasoning ability. But another intriguing possibility relates descriptions of the conditions in which the family lived while in Rochester, New York. Travelers stopped by at the residence of Josiah Fish along their way further west, and they described some truly harsh conditions. Allen's Mill, the name of the piece of land Josiah Fish purchased, had fallen into disrepair by the time the Fish family moved in, and from reports of the family and others, Josiah seemed out of his depth when it came to restoring it and into working in safe order. The family, reportedly, subsisted on raccoon meat, cakes fried in raccoon oil, bread and tea without sugar or milk. A traveler to Niagara Falls at that time, Le Comte de Cobert Mouvier, recorded in his diary that men, women, and children were packed up to eight in a room, which was thick with fleas. Another traveler, John Maud, 
described the poor condition of the mill and the frequent flooding in the area. Frequent flooding brought mosquitoes, and mosquitoes brought malaria, often called ague, during this period. Another brother of Emery and Elijah, Lucian Fish, noted that everyone in the family got malaria and that their mother had died of it. And he himself describes how miserable he had been sweating and sweating in the poorly ventilated rooms of the mill. Malaria is a disease caused by a parasite and transmitted to humans through the bites of infected mosquitoes. Malaria symptoms include chills, high fever, muscle aches and headaches, and tiredness. The high fever is of particular interest. A high enough fever for an extended period of time can cause behavioral changes, with violent outbursts being noted. Of course, at this time, the connection between swampy areas and malaria was noted, but the connection to mosquitoes was not. The only way folks in Emery's lifetime knew to avoid malaria was to avoid swampy areas altogether, a plan that just wasn't super realistic for most. We might never truly understand the cause of Emery's mental illness and his actions. Unfortunately for himself and Polly and Cynthia, he did not get any treatment for his condition that may have helped him. In fact, the practice of psychology to help treat conditions of the mind did not truly begin until the mid-1800s. Emery died in prison in 1830, and we have no records of where he is buried, but we do know that he was not brought back to Birmingham's Greenwood Cemetery, and probably for good reason. It should go without saying that cemeteries are only needed in a new settlement after people have started dying. And in 1825, burials normally took place on grounds run and administered by whatever church that family attended or on family property. In 1825, in Birmingham, there were no church buildings, and different congregations met in the homes and barns of their members. Nobody in the settlement was probably even thinking of the eventuality of a cemetery in 1825, as most of the settlers were middle-aged and younger. But in April 1825, there was suddenly a need. Public, non-denominational cemeteries were a brand new and rather progressive idea at the time. Land in Pontiac had already been set aside for use as one, but no burial in it had yet taken place. Enter our first urban legend surrounding the utter murders. Ziba Swan, the doctor who gave testimony at Emory's trial, donated a half acre of his land so that Polly and Cynthia could have a proper burial. That much is historical fact, but the why is the legend. According to the story, he is the one who recommended Emory as a boarder to the Utter family, and he was consumed by guilt. Again, we have no documentation of Ziba's frame of mind when donated the land, but it makes a good story, no? Greenwood Cemetery beat out Pontiac's public cemetery by being the oldest public cemetery in Michigan to have the first burial. Greenwood has since been expanded several times in the last almost 200 years and is still an active burial ground today, with the Utter Women being its first occupants. Our second urban legend comes from descendants of the Utter family, who wrote an account in 2006 in which they state that 
when the men, this forms part of the third urban legend, just you wait, came into the cabin where Polly and Cynthia were with the toddler Mary Ann, that Polly and Cynthia hid Mary Ann underneath the bed while they ran out the door with Emery in pursuit. An account on Mary Ann's Find a Grave page says that when she was hidden under laundry or clothing. Again, the only contemporary account we have is that when Ziba and John Utter found the child on the bed, and while there were some blood stains in the cabin, according to another newspaper account, there is no further evidence as the state of mind of Polly and Cynthia that day. But it makes sense. Perhaps Emery entered the cabin fresh from killing his brother's horse, and Polly and Cynthia acted as decoys to get him out of the cabin and away from the child, much as Elijah would later state that he had done with his own family. And most parents would probably say that they would do the same in such a scenario. Of course, we don't really know the sequence of events that day. Elijah's horse may have been the first or the last victim. Emery Fish may have surprised Polly and Cynthia in the cabin or outside. The art of investigating crime scenes and piecing together a sequence of events based on clues found at the scene of the crime was still a long way away. So, our last urban legend is about the men instead of just a man who committed the murder. In our records here at the museum, we have several pieces of correspondence over the years from people asking what happened to the Native American man who acted alongside Emery. This is a simple misunderstanding from some earlier documents that talk about the first murders in Oakland County. It's said that these were committed by Emery Fish and a, quote, Indian. A further and more careful reading reveals that there was a Native American man who was tried for a separate murder at the same time as Emery Fish, and he had no connections to the Utters or Emery. But older documents can be pretty hard to parse to a modern reader, so it's not outlandish that this misunderstanding would happen and would spread. And finally, we get to our oral tradition, which does contain some information that is at odds with the official records of the act, but it can give us a sense of how the community reacted to the tragical circumstances. And yep, I'm never going to stop using that word now. In an 1881 article in the Michigan Pioneer and Historical Society Connection is the story of a Mesa Bagley, an early settler in the area, written by Nancy G. Davis, a Mass's daughter. She was young in 1825 and recalled that her father had stayed home to watch the children while her mother went off to prepare Polly and Cynthia's burial shrouds. She explains that there just wasn't enough pieces of cloth available to make both shrouds, so local women took their fabric scraps and combined them. News of Emery's capture must not have reached the Bagley home until well after the event, because her father was sitting by the door with a gun and almost shot a neighbor who approached the home without announcing himself. In this account, we also find another variant on Emery's name, too, spelled E-M-I-R. Trying to recall something that happened 56 years previously when you were a young child is hard to do, and often these memories are colored by other memories or emotions felt at the time. 
But even if Nancy Davis's memories aren't 100% accurate, they can give us a sense of what the community was feeling. And this is the most interesting part. Both Nancy Davis and Elijah Fish's daughter, Fanny Fish, went into great detail in their accounts of how the community pulled together whenever somebody needed help. And sometimes it does take a tragedy to bring a community together. The bond and sense of community that many in Birmingham still feel today may very well have been born in the aftermath of the murder of Polly and Cynthia. In a decade later, in court records and newspaper accounts, the settlement takes on the name Birmingham instead of just being given the name of the township. John Utter and his two surviving children stayed in the area until John's death two years later in 1827. According to a family story, he died of a broken heart. At the time, it was common for orphaned children to be shipped off to surviving family members. But Joseph and Mary stayed in the community, and they were raised by their uncle, living here until they both married in 1839 in a double wedding. Mary Ann married Hezekiah Rowley, and Joseph married Caroline Holly. Years later, Joseph's daughter, Mary Utter, became a prominent political figure in Birmingham in the 1910s and 1920s. But that is a story for another day. Thank you for joining us in this first episode of Birmingham Uncovered. Special thanks to the Birmingham Area Cable Board for PEG grant funding that made this podcast possible. Also, thanks to past and present staff of the Birmingham Museum, in particular, Leslie Pilak, who located the court records for the United States versus Emmerich Fish, and Brittany Phelan, who transcribed the documents, including a rather grisly coroner's report that I'm sure wasn't very fun reading first thing in the morning. Also, thanks to members of the community who, like the Rowley family, provided the museum with their family stories. To read the court documents, newspaper accounts, and other documents used in this episode, check out our webpage, linked below in the show notes. If you have comments, concerns, or questions, please reach out to us at museum at ehamgov.org. I'm Caitlin Donnelly. Thank you so much for listening, and join us in two weeks for a look at the life of Elijah Fish, who led a life almost the exact opposite of his brothers in almost every way. And it gives us an intimate look at anti-slavery activity in the early 1800s, both nationally and right here in Birmingham.